From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. In just one week, a man saved six people who were overdosing on opioids last month. We were at the park here in Denver at Civic Center, and you look over and somebody's slumped, passed out, or they're blue. So you gotta go keep them alive real quick. We'll focus on fentanyl overdoses, a synthetic opioid that's far stronger than heroin. Fatal drug overdoses in Colorado are outpacing the national average. Plus, what does the recent mass shooting at a birthday party in Colorado Springs indicate about domestic violence? This was a dramatic reminder to me of just how big a problem it remains in our community and throughout our country and the world. We'll talk with two women focused on helping victims escape their abusers and the challenges the pandemic has added to an already difficult situation. On the new episode of Systemic, meet a law enforcement leader who tries to change things from the top down and sometimes faces resistance from her own officers. So we had a meeting and I said, I know how officers behave. And I'm gonna tell you right now, I don't like the undertone, I don't like the overtone, and I will not stand for it. And Find Systemic from Colorado Public Radio on Apple Podcasts, NPR One, or wherever you listen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. In just one week in May, Eric Piper helped revive six people who were overdosing on opioids. We were at the park here in Denver at Civic Center, and you look over and somebody's slumped, passed out, or they're blue. So you gotta go keep them alive real quick. Piper himself uses heroin and lives on the streets. We caught up with him at Denver's Harm Reduction Action Center. He goes there to exchange used syringes for sterile ones. He says he and others use Narcan in order to keep people alive. It's a nasal spray medication that revives people who have overdosed. Most of us there keep it in our pockets or backpacks. I want to have somebody like when, when they see somebody go out, uh, they just scream Narcan and there's five people run towards them pretty quick. Piper says the overdose problem has only gotten worse this year. It's definitely different, a whole lot different than other years. Uh, I think it's due to the influx of uh, fentanyl that's been hitting the state. Every single month, there's more and more people getting evicted and there's more homeless people. You know, it's been real tough for, for everybody. Fentanyl is a synthetic opioid that's far stronger than heroin. In Colorado, fatal overdoses jumped an estimated 37 percent from 2019 to 2020, a higher increase than the national average. Fentanyl is often pressed into a pill form, and it's easy to get. Eric Piper says it's not that hard to distinguish fentanyl from less lethal drugs. It has different characteristics, and test kits are widely available. I feel like most people know when they get it because it tastes and smells a lot different than normal heroin. But also a lot of people don't take the time to even like do a taste test, much less use an actual testing kit. So that's when you get the people who overdose on it real quick. Piper says no one he's revived with Narcan has died from an overdose. He gets it from the Harm Reduction Action Center, the place where he gets new syringes. Lisa Rayville runs the place. Also with us, CJ Oliveira, who is the housing administrator for the Sober Living House in South Boulder. Welcome to you both. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Lisa, let's start with you. It sounds like Eric Piper is a de facto first responder on the streets of Denver. How common is that? 
Oh, absolutely. We are in the midst of the worst overdose crisis that the United States, Colorado, and Denver has ever seen. People who use drugs are the true first responders in the midst of this overdose crisis. So we're so thankful to have Eric out there. But we also know that people who use drugs are exhausted um, by saving each other's lives. Um, and we need to be, be able to do something different as well. And obviously a person with Narcan, they can't resuscitate themselves. So this is really something for helping others, right? Correct. Yes. Uh, one of the main factors of overdosing and dying from an overdose is simply using alone by the very fact that no one's there to witness, recognize or respond. So oftentimes we are very pleased when, as Eric said earlier, when folks are at the park and somebody yells out Narcan, folks come running. Lisa, overdosers were already on the rise in Colorado and nationally well before 2019. But what are you seeing now that's changed? Well, I think, you know, as you as you're COVID was a problem, but COVID, we've been having increased overdose deaths since the 1980s. What we saw is social isolation using alone, and fentanyl is here. We were never too cute to think that fentanyl wouldn't come to Colorado, and it's definitely here. We also know that relapse can be a part of recovery for so many folks, and any period of abstinence puts folks at higher risk of overdosing. So we kind of had that trifecta happen last year. Um, and we ha- we aren't seeing even plateauing at this point. It's a lot of factors lot. in play. CJ, let's bring you in here. You work in a residential facility in South Boulder with 10 beds. And I understand that you've been doing this for about five years. What's notable about what you're seeing these days? I think, you know, the facility I work in being in Boulder, it's tends to be a different population than you would see. You know, you hear about the homeless population and the responses that they have to have. And I think it's scary the two people in the community I work in because what we've seen in the past few months is high school kids, college kids, kids that people don't tend to think would be in a situation where they would need to know how to use something like naloxone or Narcan are needing those things. And I uh, speak a lot with former clients who have left who call me asking if I can help them find Narcan um, because they've relapsed and, and it can be very difficult sometimes to get access to those things for those clients. And Lisa mentioned a few factors that have really contributed to a rise in these overdoses. Are those some similar factors of what you're seeing in your community? Yeah, yeah, 100%. And it's across the board, even with substances, you don't tend to see overdoses with uh, the number of alcoholics seeking treatment. Um, And even outside of substance use, just mental health in in general, I think, has been affected by the isolation and the things that have happened in the past year to the whole world. So, Lisa, Chinese companies produce the bulk of fentanyl, but Mexico is a key production point as well. Tell me more about why fentanyl has become so prevalent these days. Well, you know, we have an unpredictable drug supply, right? And so because we don't have a regulated drug supply, there's always going to be issues. We criminalize drug use, which is put it underground. If stigma, shame, and incarceration worked with drug use, we'd have wrapped this up a long time ago, right? Um, So, you know, fentanyl has been a cheap cut for long periods of time. Um, It's concerning to me where we are hearing some decision makers say, oh, we're caught off guard. We should have been caught off guard. Fentanyl's been in the United States for quite a few years and definitely was started on the East Coast at least five to seven years ago. So, um, you know, we've been trying to yell into the void and letting folks know, which is why, you know, we've had access to naloxone or Narcan for people who use drugs for the last nine years. Uh, We also have had it for third parties. Anybody in the state can carry it. We want to make sure they have access. They can go to pharmacies or a harm reduction organization. Um, So it's important that folks have access and we're having those conversations about why people overdose. 
quite frankly, it's an unpredictable drug supply. And when people use alone, they're at higher risk of overdosing. We want to take injecting and people who use drugs out of the public sphere and put them into a controlled environment. So if they do overdose, someone's there to recognize and respond. And we know that decriminalizing drugs is a controversial issue. CJ, you've used heroin for many years before you went into recovery a few years ago. Have you noticed any changes in the use of drugs since then based on what you observed in your clients? Um, I think the patterns of use tend to stay the same, but the types of substances they're using, and as you mentioned, um, you know, the fake pills that are being produced. Um, you know, another thing that with fentanyl that is just something that needs to be said is there's a pragmatic side to it. It's a hundred times stronger than something like morphine potentially. That's a hundred times less product that you would need to move from Mexico into the U.S. And there's other substances like carfentanil that are a hundred times stronger than fentanyl that we're going to have to start seeing. And yes, fentanyl was around five years ago. It was something that as an active IV user, we were aware of. And this isn't something that creeped up on us. This is something that was ignored. And now that it's starting to affect some communities that people have to pay attention to, uh, you're starting to see movement on that issue, which is a good thing in the end. um, But this is not something that, that crept up on us in any way. And it goes back to what we heard from Eric Piper earlier, that this is easy to get. Have you witnessed any overdoses through your work, CJ? Um, in the house, we have not had any overdoses. I, I have had clients who have left the house that unfortunately have passed from overdose. Mm, I'm sorry to hear that. How much does this increase in overdoses have to do with COVID-19? We've talked about the isolation that comes for many people. Um, are there other ways that you've seen the pandemic contribute? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, my personal belief is that, you know, actual substance use when it comes to an addict is not the issue. Um, It's the solution that they find to something else. So when you have issues like COVID or other issues going on, it's something that's going to compound those mental health or um, just environmental issues that can occur. And the substance use is going to increase from those problems. So it's not necessarily the actual use. It's the problems that they're facing that they're using to deal with. And those things are always going to get worse in situations where you're being isolated. And CJ, you're near the University of Colorado Boulder, and you said that some kids think that they're taking Xanax when it's really something more lethal. How common is that? I think it's it's fairly common, especially with younger kids who don't have experience with use. They don't know what Xanax is really supposed to feel like. They don't know what other substances are supposed to feel like. So, I mean, you have instances of people having fentanyl and cocaine as an attempt to get them hooked on cocaine and they don't realize that that's not how it's supposed to feel. So the lack of education and the lack of the ability to access the information, I think is also a big issue because as Lisa said, there is a stigma. There is um, a, a looking down on people that use. And I think that anybody who wants to have access to the information to learn about these things should be allowed to do that. I'm speaking with Lisa Rayville. She runs the Harm Reduction Action Center. And CJ Oliveira is the housing administrator for the Sober Living House in South Boulder. Lisa, there are some people who use opioids along with drugs like methamphetamine. Does that increase the risk of overdose? Oh, absolutely. Well, one of the main reasons that people overdose is mixing. Um, Some drugs are synergistic. So we do see that we see alcohol. And even as uh, CJ was pointing out, even young kids, alcohol in one pill, whether or not it's 
illicit or not, right? Puts people at higher risk of overdosing. So um, I think, you know, where we've lacked in education is that the United States has never done a great job talking about the war on drug users. It's been incredibly racist and classist since forever, but especially since 1971 uh, with the Nixon administration. And so a lot of times people have a hard time talking about education because it hurts their tummies and drugs are bad and people are using drugs and people use drugs for a variety of reasons. We have a very predictable drug supply. That's called alcohol. (laughs) <laughs> you know, so it is possible. Uh, but when you criminalize the behavior and you other and shame people, um, it pushes them underground. And when you put things underground, it's truly dangerous. Um, so we, we have a problem. And the pandemic has also created a lot of other sorts of instabilities. There's been a rise in the number of people living in tents in Denver during the COVID-19 pandemic. Eric Piper, we heard from him earlier, doesn't want to use a tent, but he spends most of his nights outdoors. He said there were a few freezing nights this winter, which were miserable outside. But he says, like a lot of people, he doesn't want to stay in a shelter. He says it's like being in jail. It's uncomfortable. There's a bunch of you stacked on top of each other. Um, stuff gets stolen all the time. It's unsafe. Uh, there are strict rules. People can't make it to work. It's just not a good solution at all. Lisa, your center is close to many of these encampments. How do you see the drug crisis intersecting with the issue of people experiencing homelessness in Denver? Sure. I do think it's a very tall ask to ask unhoused folks to be sober because of all the crisis management that happens on the streets. We do know that some folks uh, use meth in the winter who are unhoused, so they can walk around the city and not lay down and freeze to death. So meth can be a survival method for a lot of folks. Uh, This is a poly drug use crisis. And overdose is the leading cause of death of our unhoused neighbors in Colorado and has been for the last three years at least. Um, So I need them together in these encampments oftentimes because I need them there to recognize and respond to an overdose. And a lot of times people don't want to go into the shelters, like Eric said, for a variety of reasons. And you can't use in the shelters. There's no bathroom stall doors on some of the men's overnight shelters so people can use outside. And when folks are unhoused, they're using outside, in alleys, in parks, and in business bathrooms. And in the last year and a half, I think we've had a lot of problems because a lot of the business bathrooms have been closed, right? So people haven't been able to inject inside. So people feel like they're seeing it more outside. And when people overdose outside, it used to be cops coming up on them. Now it's, you know, people walking down the street and random passerbyers, and it doesn't have to be so. That's a larger community trauma issue as well. Lisa, you distribute sterile syringes at your center, but you've long advocated for a place where people can inject themselves in a safer environment where they can be monitored, like you're describing. This isn't permitted right now, and lawmakers have been reluctant to allow it. Do you think the current overdose crisis could convince some of those lawmakers to change their minds? Avery, you'd think so. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we, we have the worst overdose crisis we've ever seen. It's in, It's not just a Denver issue. It's an everybody issue. Uh, City Council passed an exemption to the nuisance ordinance in 2018 to give that nod to state legislators. We haven't plateaued. Um, You asked CJ how many overdoses he's seen. We've seen, my staff has recognized and responded to five in the last three weeks. So this is just now we've got this fourth wave of fentanyl overdose crisis coming in. I can give folks everything they need currently to prevent and eliminate the transmission of HIV and hepatitis C, resources, referrals, naloxone, and fentanyl testing strips, but they can't inject here. So they go a few blocks away and inject in an alley or business bathroom, often alone. I want them here with me. No one's ever died of an overdose at an overdose prevention site. And the number one treatment admission requirement in Colorado and Denver is people have to be alive. Dead drug users do not have the opportunity for recovery. And when people are alive, there's hope.
Let's talk a little bit about recovery and treatment. CJ, is affordable treatment available for people who want it? Yes, it is in some capacity. Um, I started my career working at a community mental health facility in Thornton. And, you know, a big issue that you see with those facilities is one, funding, two, the way that Medicaid does not really cover any type of inpatient. It's actually done through the Office of Behavioral Health. Even though legislature has said that they are allocating money to that, I don't see it happening. Um, The populations that you see in these community mental health facilities are also tend to be marginalized populations, people coming out of DOC, women coming from forced prostitution, people coming off the street, black and Hispanic people. Um, And those tend to be the people that get overlooked, to be honest. And like I said earlier, when you have three or four high school and college students die in Boulder County, it becomes much more of a story than the multitudes of people you see dying on the street in Denver off of Federal or off of Pecos where people just kind of get lost in the mix. So yes, there is access to treatment and there are people that are trying to help, but the reality of the situation is we are not doing enough as a profession to get people into these places and to provide quality service to these people. And the sad part is the money's there, they're cutting Medicaid funding to other people, to the reimbursement for treatment um, to providers, yet I don't know where that money's going. And that's probably the most frustrating piece for me of this is because this is a solvable issue. It's just everybody is in their own silo right now and we need to find a way to get everybody together because there's people out there that want to help. They're just not able to right now. And based on what you've seen in just the 30 seconds we have left, what do you think would help reduce drug use and lessen overdose deaths? I think a, a, a more solid focus on mental health, emotional regulation. I mean, growing up, I learned about things that happened in the 1300s in school where I think it would have been much more productive to learn about how to manage my own emotions and the education that we get around how to deal with our mental health is is non-existent. And I think educating people at a younger age would definitely help. Um, and that's, I don't know, it's just a point of view I've always had. Lisa and CJ, thank you both so much for being here. Thank you for having us. CJ, thank you very much. CJ Oliveira is the Housing Administrator and Alumni Coordinator for the Sober Living House in South Boulder. Lisa Rayville is Executive Director of the Harm Reduction Action Center in Denver. We've been talking about the rising number of overdose deaths in Colorado and across the country. Companies in Colorado are gearing up to bring remote workers back into the office, but there's an army of people responsible for maintaining the office that's been there the whole time. CPR business reporter Sarah Mulholland continues her special series on the return to the workplace with what the pandemic has meant for building maintenance staff. The Optive Building is one of the newest skyscrapers in Denver. With 40 stories of gleaming glass, it's hard to miss when you're driving around downtown. It's pretty quiet on a recent Tuesday. The elevator wells are empty. There's just a smattering of people passing through the revolving doors. But everything from the polished lobby floors to the planters is immaculately kept, ready for the lawyers, bankers, consultants, and cybersecurity experts that filled the building before the pandemic. It's anybody's guess how many of these people are coming into the office these days. But there's about half a dozen women who've been coming in almost every night, to clean. That's Armacinda Arias. She says she works at the building on 15th Street cleaning bathrooms, sanitizing offices, vacuuming, and mopping. 
She's been a janitor since she moved to the U.S. from Guatemala three years ago. There are thousands of people like Arias across the state who keep the office clean and safe and running smoothly. Some lost their jobs when companies sent people home to work. And some of them, like Arias, never left the office. While Arias never stopped working during the pandemic, her hours were cut. That made it hard for her family to make ends meet. And with two young children, she says she was worried about bringing COVID home. Some of her coworkers were let go. And even though businesses are starting to bring people back to the office, the janitorial staff at Arias's building is still a skeleton crew. There used to be 12 people cleaning the property. Now there's only eight. The workers that are left have more floors to clean and less time to do it. Aria says she had to learn to walk faster. On top of their regular duties, the night crew also has to deep clean and disinfect for COVID. Sometimes some of the offices are full and some are mostly empty. But Aria says it doesn't really matter how many people come in. She still has to clean and disinfect everything. A spokesperson for the building maintenance company that she works for, CCS, says they are just trying to maintain cleaning standards according to their clients' needs. Juan Montaña is the property services director for SEIU Local 105, the union that represents janitorial workers, including Arias. Their contract with companies, including CCS, expires in July. He says the union is very worried about the workload and they want companies to return to full staffing. Locally is the moment to bargain, so we're going to try to get some good advances in workload um, because once you cut, it's very hard to bring it back what it was. A lot of building personnel haven't necessarily seen a change in hours, but their daily routines have changed a bit. Judy Duran is the senior director of property management with CBRE, a commercial real estate firm. Her team oversees security staff, engineers, and janitors for office buildings across Colorado. She says security staff had to start enforcing government orders, like reminding people to put their masks on. And sometimes they take a lap around the building to look for the kinds of little things that tenants might otherwise notice. We use them as our eyes and ears to make sure that there weren't any, you know, issues with toilets overflowing or um, offices that were left unlocked, um, just to, you know, keep an eye on on the building itself. Duran says there have been cuts in overnight janitorial staff, but there haven't been cuts in most other roles. She says buildings have to be properly maintained, even if only a handful of people are actually coming in. Let's say we have a building that has 800 people. We would see maybe 50 or 60 people during the day. But we still have that same obligation to those 50 or 60 people that would come into the office every day. But that obligation doesn't make it any easier for the crew left to clean and disinfect offices. Aria says that she got back the hours she lost at the start of the pandemic. But she's worried that the company she works for, one of the largest building maintenance contractors in Denver, will never bring the other workers back. And that the workload, especially now that office workers are returning, is too much for the smaller crew. I'm Sarah Mulholland, CPR News. After the break, the pandemic's impact on domestic violence, people who help victims are working hard to overcome the challenges of isolation. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
Some of Colorado's largest employers offer a matching gift or workplace giving promotion to their employees. Using a program like this, you can often double your giving impact. Companies like IBM, Google, United Health Group, Excel Energy, and Chevron top the list for gifts to CPR. See if your company matches on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. A man walked into a birthday party in Colorado Springs last month and shot and killed six people and then himself. Several children were orphaned. The shooter had been in a relationship with one of the family members throwing the party. The police chief later said that domestic violence was at the core of what happened. Colorado Springs Mayor John Southers also spoke out about domestic violence. It's been a generational problem that we faced. A lot of uh, changes have been made for the good but it still remains a huge problem. And this was a dramatic reminder to me of just how big a problem it remains in our community and throughout our country and the world. That audio from Fox 21 in Colorado Springs. Advocates say the stresses and isolation of COVID-19 pandemic has made it even more challenging for victims of domestic violence to seek help. Rika Molay is a community engagement manager with TESSA. It's a nonprofit based in Colorado Springs. Its goal is to create a community that is free from, sec- from sexual assault, domestic violence, stalking, and human trafficking. TESSA operates in El Paso and Teller counties. Welcome, Rika. Thank you for having me. Nicole Castillo is a program director with the Rose Andam Center based in Denver. It connects victims of domestic violence with a variety of services. Nicole, welcome. Thank you. Rika, you're based in Colorado Springs. Was the birthday party shooting a kind of wake-up call for the domestic violence advocacy community, or was it something that didn't so much surprise you given how much domestic violence you already know is going on behind closed doors? Yeah, so those one-off instances, we we really don't uh, see too much in our community. So this was something that, uh, you know, just went through our whole community, went through our whole advocacy department and our organization. And this was just really surprising to us. Um, as an organization, we hear and see a lot of domestic violence cases every day. And so they've just it's hard to know when a client or someone you don't know hasn't reached out to you. So that's the instance where we hope we get those referrals and we are still spreading the word of awareness that we're here and we're here to help uh, no matter what the situation may be. And did you get an increase of calls after, after that happened? Yes, yes. We definitely saw a very huge increase of calls afterwards, uh, mostly just uh, not knowing what domestic violence looked like um, and wanting to understand it more. And then more uh, on the side of, you know, I may be in a domestic violence situation. How can I get help? So referring and getting and providing those resources to a lot of people. The El Paso County coroner said domestic violence accounted for the largest number of homicide deaths in the county last year. Nicole, what do we know about how often domestic violence becomes deadly and how that affects family members in the larger community? Thank you. Absolutely. I think that, you know, domestic violence homicides, what we know about them is that a very large percentage of them involve a firearm. Um, and obviously, you know, when you have friends and family members that are close by, other bystanders could include 
medical personnel, police, they can also become um, victims in a homicide. Rika, you mentioned that a lot of people were calling and just wanting to know more about what domestic violence is. Let's take a moment to talk about that. Beyond physical abuse, it can be financial, emotional, psychological. It's ultimately about power in a relationship, right? Correct. Yes. So we we really focus on that power and control wheel. So an abuser uses these multiple different ways of tactics to um, isolate or uh, abuse their their victim. And so it's going to be that financial support. They may not know what's coming in um, as far as money goes. Uh, isolation, we saw that uh, a large use during the COVID period, that pandemic. So not being able to see their family and friends, not being able to talk to them. Um, and then just emotional abuse. Uh, it may not even be physical. It may just be, you know, gaslighting or using inferior tones or talking down to them and making themselves doubt themselves. And what are some of the ways that those warning signs can manifest that people can watch out for in their own relationships or relationships of people that they love, Rika? Yeah, it's uh, mainly just, you know, understanding the patterns. Uh, there's a cycle of abuse that abusers use. There, there's, a, there's a honeymoon phase. So it's when you're first starting to date um, and you're getting that happy-go-lucky uh, smile on your face and everything's happy and whatnot. And then you have that tension-building phase. So you may see some instances where they get angry a lot quicker or they may be hiding information from you or not wanting to share or disclose any like just personal information um and just even sometimes just even though the simplest things may set them off and then uh that's that and then from there it goes that you know uh big buildup of they may use um physical abuse they may use emotional tactics and then they they feel that remorse so they want to you know gift you with something or they want to say sorry a lot and so you're seeing that power of control and you see that cycle that's continuous um we know it takes around seven to ten times for a victim to actually leave their abuser and it's because of these tactics that the abuser is using on them so these manipulation tactics, they can be powerful. Nicole, we heard Rika say earlier that you just don't know who hasn't gotten in touch. And domestic violence, it's often hidden because it happens within the home. Sometimes even people living there don't realize that it's happening. Nicole, tell me more about how you reach people in those hidden situations. Yeah, I think it's about a lot of public awareness, um, just trying to get the word out wherever we can. The Rosandum Center tries to reach out to community-based organizations, um, community groups, just to get the word out. I think it's also really important to have the messages in places that folks are frequenting. So, for example, um, having information available at a doctor's office can make a really big difference. Someone could be there for a routine exam or some other service and pick up our card and start to identify with some of the, the warning signs that they're reading in there. And let's talk a little bit more about the pandemic and how that's created an even more difficult situation. Uh, we know with the isolation, the lockdown, and the fears stirred up by the pandemic that that can change patterns and trends in domestic violence. But Rika, you said right after quarantines went into place, you got very few calls for help and it scared you. Why? 
Yeah, uh, just because the resources we have to shut down um, and a lot of our clients use ways to get out of the house, you know, maybe having to go grocery shopping or get do the laundry. So that's their way to get to us safely and have that conversation. And so when that was taken away from them, when we were in complete lockdown, that was really scary. And especially with the students, um, students reach out to the counselors and they couldn't do that anymore. So we got, it was really low numbers um, for that month at least. And then we immediately saw that increase uh, due to the governor's um, the governor's call of that any domestic violence situation you can leave your home um, because of that so that increase just just increased immensely um, after that month month or so and how did you how did you meet those challenges tell me about the other ways that you found to meet people even when they couldn't necessarily say that they were leaving the house to go do laundry yeah, yeah. So uh, we opened up a chat line on our website, twenty four seven, and then we were we opened up a lot more advocacy lines. So instead of just our twenty four seven safe line, we made it available so they could call into number a number of uh, different advocates if they couldn't reach through our safe line. So it made that opportunity a little bit more. Uh, easily effective to reach us um, in these certain situations, either by text or phone call. Nicole, tell me a little bit about how the pandemic changed the way that you offered services and the need for your services. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly like what Rico was mentioning, we saw this really big dip right when the quarantine started and then was almost like a doubling in numbers. And I would say we're continuing to see a huge increase in calls. Um, One of the strategies that we started to put in place was actually mailing cell phones to folks. So we were able to provide like all of the same services that we'd be able to provide in the building through phone. Um, But a lot of folks didn't have access to phones. So, um, you know, we started just overnighting cell phones to people, which was truly a lifeline for them to access life-saving resources, get into shelter. Um, We also, you know, provided the opportunity for folks to use video chat to connect with us. But we noticed that because of the isolation and, you know, the small uh, bits of time in which many victims just had to step out of the house and make a phone call, that that was preferable over um, using a video, video camera. That makes sense. Sometimes you have to relocate victims and even their families into shelters or safe houses. Was that still happening at the height of the pandemic? Yes. And I would say it was it was even more significant. So the Rose Andam Center really relies on domestic violence shelters for placement. But because they had to um, keep smaller numbers in the shelters for health concerns, we ended up working with a, a number of local hotels um, and placing folks there for a couple of weeks to a month. And tell me more about the other solutions that you were able to find to physically get people away from their abusers, Rika. Yeah, so um, we really just utilized, um, like Nicole had said too, we utilized and reached out to a number of hotels and partner agencies around the or around the city. Um, we work with a lot of different homeless shelters as well throughout the city, and because of the pandemic, we did have to 
cut our cut our safe house uh, in half as far as limiting the amount of people in there. So we definitely relied heavily on hotels um, and you know local hotel local homeless shelters to to assist us. And as pandemic restrictions let up and people become less isolated, how have calls for your services changed? You know, I think there's still a steady increase. Uh, People still need us and people are still trying to find a way to get to us in some way, shape or form. And so being able to provide multiple different services um, is really, is really, has really helped us. And I think just being in this um, isolation of us being working from home and remote, we we now can know that we can utilize that system. We can take those phone calls in uh, in a more effective way and be able to provide those resources um, in in a different amount of of avenues. And I'm really curious about those resources and how they can be used to prevent domestic violence in the first place. But Nicole, what do you think it would take to move the needle on that? I think it's about getting earlier interventions. So, you know, at the point that someone is starting to notice, whether it's financial abuse, verbal abuse, that they could reach out to an advocate who could really start to help them to safety plan and put the things in place in their lives so that when they wanted to flee, that they were able to. Um, You know, I think with this situation, there's there was the most significant type of violence, which is, you know, a homicide by a firearm. And and we know there are earlier warning signs that are building to that point. So I think having early intervention, helping the person to get the resources that they need so that they can flee when they're ready is so important. Enrico, what do you think? Uh, very much agree with Nicole. Um, I think we, we utilize a, a lot as well, uh, starting in the and starting in high schools and middle schools, teaching kids about what healthy relationships look like and what, you know, consent looks like. So starting it earlier because we know that it's starting earlier. We're seeing those signs a lot earlier, those warning signs. And so providing those resources and bringing awareness to our community as much as we can to provide that information to them that, you know, this is what to look out for. These are the resources that we can provide and this is how we can help. We we are, we are advocates first and foremost, and we want to be able to provide those resources and just a listening ear as, as quickly and as effectively as possible. I want to thank you both so much for joining us. If anyone listening right now needs access or help with resources, we'll have those on our website at CPR.org. Rika Mole is a community engagement manager with TESA. It's a nonprofit based in Colorado Springs. And Nicole Castillo is a program director with the Rose Andam Center based in Denver. It's a clearinghouse for a variety of services to help victims of domestic violence. The Pentagon will release a report this month about what the U.S. government knows about UFOs. It's supposed to detail unexplainable sightings, like this one recorded by some Navy pilots. There's a whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. The wind's 120 knots to the west. Denver author and popular science contributing editor Sarah Scholes explores the fascination with these phenomena. Her book is called They Are Already Here, UFO Culture and Why We See Saucers. We spoke last June. Hi, Sarah. 
Hi, thank you for having me. We're going to talk ufology, the study of UFOs. We've all heard the term UFO, but I understand its definition has actually led to a new acronym as well. Can you explain that evolution? Sure. Once the Pentagon started talking about UFOs, they began to call them UAP or Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, which kind of divorces them from this old extraterrestrial connotation they always had and also leaves more room for military stuff like the fact that they might just be stuff, um, you know, foreign objects uh, going into airspace they're not supposed to go to or things that can't be uh, identified immediately. So it's kind of an attempt to, to make a new cultural meaning out of what UFO used to be. And you found that apparently there are certain people who are more likely to see a UFO or UAP. Who are they? (laughs) Yeah, this actually comes from some statistical work that a woman named Cheryl Costa has done. And she found that the people who are most likely to see UFOs are people who have dogs and people who smoke because they are outside on the regular at kind of the same times of day. And they know what the sky looks like and when something looks off with it. That's so interesting. And you even had a time that you thought you saw a UFO. What happened? Yeah, I did. And it was very unexpected. I was up in Wyoming with friends watching the the solar eclipse that happened a few years ago. Um, And we were just camping and uh, it was wildfire season, so we couldn't have a campfire. So we were just staring up at the stars and we saw this little light going in an arc. And we, you know, we assumed it was a satellite. And then all of a sudden this spotlight seems to appear from it and kind of sweep down and stare directly at us. And we all thought, oh my gosh, it knows it knows we're here. What is that? Are we about to be tracked or beamed up into a UFO? Um, and then it just kind of swept away and, and disappeared. Um, and then a few minutes later, I remembered something that I knew, which is that there's a phenomenon called an iridium flare, which comes from uh, an iridium communication satellite where the sun kind of reflects off its big solar panels and uh, creates this flash that looks like it's pointing directly at you like a spotlight. But um, it was... Uh, creepy and wonderful. (laughs) So even though you have this scientific knowledge that goes with it, you do have this moment of kind of collective imagination, even within your group. Oh, sure. Yeah, I think I think a part of everyone's brain a would be really excited to see a UFO. And just like before your rational brain kicks in, um, you know, it's your your fear brain is like something is is coming to get me. And uh, I was with a group of scientists, actually. And we all we all thought the same thing, even though um, in some sense we knew better. Now, not everyone interested in UFOs wears a tinfoil hat. I'd imagine most don't. Uh, What did you learn about who the people are who make up this UFO community? Right. Actually, uh, you know, when I started doing research from this book, I had a lot of preconceived ideas about who was interested in UFOs, which was mostly hardcore conspiracy theorists, which it turns out is not not true at all. Um, uh, I think one in six people has seen a UFO, and many more than that believe that there, there's more to this phenomenon than meets the eye. And um, there is a group of people that is very large that is just kind of uh, what I call agnostically interested in UFOs. You know, they have this problem. It's been around for decades and decades, and no one has been able to explain it. And so they can just, you know, research, they can get government documents, they can do interviews with witnesses, and they really go about it in a a really investigatory, uh, almost journalistic way. And that, that really surprised me. And not to tarnish the magic, but what might people actually be seeing when they think they've seen a UFO? You already gave one explanation for when you saw your satellite. 
Yeah, there's a number of explanations. And um, I'll say before I before I explain what they might be, that in, in every you know, UFO, UFO investigation program that has happened, there does remain this small percentage that is unidentified, no matter how hard people try to explain them. So there does seem to be something, you know, mysterious going on up there. But um, actually, really, really everyday things like the planet Venus can look truly strange when it's really close to the horizon and flickering. And um, it, ca- it can honestly look like a flying saucer, um, especially in places like here in Colorado, where there's a lot of um, Air Force and military activity. They could be, you know, flight exercises or uh, secret aircraft that the public isn't privy to. Um, some people suspect that there's some, some kind of electronic warfare going on that's confusing, um, you know, the, the military pilots. Um, and then, honestly, I mean, even things like commercial planes can look very strange if they're coming at you head on. Um, and, yeah, so th- there's a number of explanations, but there is this percentage that, that no one has been able to figure out. And I understand that they can usually identify about 90% or more of UFOs. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. We played some audio in the introduction of Navy pilots who spotted some strange things. What do you think they saw? (laughs) Um, I really, really wish I knew. And if you figure it out, I would like to know. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's hard to know because the the videos that we have and that, um, you know, a lot of the public has seen in various news stories, we just get a small snippet of what's clearly something much longer that has a lot of other data like radar data associated with it. And so I don't I don't really think I'm qualified to say what they are. But lately, when the Pentagon talks about these videos or talks about its interest in these so-called UAP, it simultaneously also talks about how drone systems are much more common than they used to be. And so it seems like there's some kind of association there. Now, one of your sources said the government had a policy of publicly debunking and treating lightly while privately investigating and treating seriously reports of UFOs. How has that affected what the public thinks about UFOs? Uh, quite a bit, I think. So in the in the mid-20th century, there were a number of programs that ran for decades, um, federal programs in the U.S. to investigate UFOs. And uh, like this researcher said, the the military invested money, invested time, invested people in figuring out what people were seeing. But at the same time, what it would say to the public is, oh, you don't need to worry about it here. Here's a bunch of explanations that we're going to put in a magazine article for for how much you don't need to care about these. Um, and historically, the, um, the military and intelligence communities have been worried that UFO reports would you know, cause mass panic among people or clog intelligence channels. And so they have kind of a vested interest in in soothing our minds about it and getting getting people not to pay attention. And that has understandably made people mistrustful of what the government has to say about UFOs because it doesn't tell us what it tells itself. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the difference between unidentified and unidentifiable flying objects. Yeah, that's kind of a semantic but important difference. Um, Unidentified just means like I could look up, um, you know, I could look up at the sun right now, which is not advisable, um, and, you know, forget what it was and not know what it is. And that would make it unidentified to me. But, you know, someone else could go outside and point at the sun and say, well, of course, that's the sun. So it is clearly identifiable. And so the difference really is whether whoever is observing or whatever instrument is observing can immediately tell what something is or whether 
no one, given a lot of time to investigate, can figure out what something is. I also want to know about maybe the most iconic of UFOs. Let's talk about flying saucers. Where did that term come from? Yeah, it has an interesting origin story um, that happened in the 1940s when there was a pilot named Kenneth Arnold who uh, was flying around. He was actually looking for a, a military aircraft that had crashed. And what he saw and said instead was this fleet of objects flying much faster than he thought anything of the day flew. Um, and he got back down on the ground and told people about it, told a reporter about it, said, you know, these things were going so fast. I have no idea what they were. And they skipped like saucers on water. Um, and that's that's what he says, he said. But then the reporter transcribed that as they looked like flying saucers in their shape. And so that's when, what went out over the news wires. And that's what ended up in a bunch of headlines. And so uh, according to the story, the term flying saucer is actually just a transcription mistake. <laughs> and the story of flying saucers is connected to Roswell, New Mexico, a place known for UFOs. What's that connection? Yeah, it was just a few months after that very first sighting that a rancher in outside of Roswell, New Mexico, was kind of, you know, checking out his distant property and came across this debris, um, you know, that looked like it had fallen from the sky. And uh, he had read a news article about these flying saucers and he thought, well, hey, maybe this stuff on my property is one of those flying saucers. And so, you know, he brought it to the local authorities, who brought it to the military, who actually put out a press release that said, yeah, we got one of those flying saucers here in New Mexico. Um, and then they retracted it um, and said that it was just a weather balloon. But that wasn't actually true. And it came out decades later that it was actually a very secret uh, atomic test detection balloon that had crashed on his property. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That was Denver science journalist and author Sarah Scholes. Her book is They Are Already Here, UFO Culture and Why We See Saucers. We spoke last June. The Pentagon will release a report this month outlining what the federal government knows about unidentified aerial phenomena. Thanks for joining us and to the always identifiable Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Allie Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner, and I'm Avery Lill, with special thanks to Shauna Lewis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.